The AGO was founded in 1900 by a group of private citizens as the Art Museum of Toronto. It was renamed the Art Gallery of Ontario in 1966. The current location of the AGO dates to 1910, when the gallery was willed the land known as the Grange upon the death of Goldwyn Smith. In 1999, Matthew spoke at the Empire Club on what we learn from the past, where he talked about the changing nature of museums by thinking about the past and wondering what doors it might open at the close of the 20th century. Well, in November 2008, Matthew Teitelbaum is opening one very big door. He has been named one of the key people behind the current cultural revival in Toronto and is a leading ambassador for the importance of Canadian art in Canada and abroad. He is also a big believer in the role of art to open up boundaries. So I know he will appreciate this quote from Twyla Tharp. Art is the only way to run away without leaving home. Please join me in welcoming Matthew Teitelbaum and prepare to embark upon a transformative journey. So I want to begin by thanking everybody because this moment, which is a great moment for Toronto and the Art Gallery of Ontario, couldn't happen without so many of you in the room. Donors, heads of corporations, the wonderful Bank of Montreal, who is our lead inaugural sponsor, and our membership. And I would say even those visitors we don't know yet who have borne witness to the regeneration of a great cultural institution. There are moments like this where I stand and represent an institution with a great history, and I know deeply and with great humility that I stand here on behalf of many, many people, and many of you are in this room. It seems as though these are difficult times in which to lead a cultural institution, and they are. The economy is on a roller coaster. Confidence and optimism have decreased. Gas prices are going all over the place. Tourism seems as challenged as disposable income. And I would just simply say, as the director of your Art Gallery of Ontario, I'm either the luckiest guy in the world with a great job or just about to go into a chapter in my institution's history that none of you can imagine. But I want to tell you why I do feel lucky. I want to tell you why, when I look at the future of the Art Gallery of Ontario, notwithstanding the context in which we exist, I feel nothing but optimism. I think that we live in a time uh, in which we are looking for ways in which to speak to one another. We're looking for that across national borders. We're looking that within our own communities. Forty percent of new immigrants uh, to Canada live in Toronto. There are 175 nationalities represented in our schools, 75 different languages. People come to Toronto because they want to meet. And so I say to you at this time of great challenge in our economic and cultural life, there's nothing but great opportunity for museums to be a meeting place of values and of populations. I feel very lucky to say that the great architect of our time, Frank Gehry, spent a lot of time with us thinking about what our reimagined Art Gallery of Ontario could be. And what you see on the screen is the model of the front of the Art Gallery of Ontario as we unveiled it over five years ago. And what you see here is a photograph of the front of the building taken uh, just two weeks ago. 
I said to Frank that the challenge was to create a public institution that declared boldly to the world what it stood for. And his response was to create this 600-foot-long glass promenade across the front of the building so that when you walk in front of the Art Gallery of Ontario, you see people looking at art. And that, in fact, of course, is what the mission of the Art Gallery of Ontario is, which is to bring art and people together and to boldly say that art can actually change the way in which you think about the world. It can give you a new language to think about the way in which you might approach different issues in today's society. That you can walk in front of the Art Gallery of Ontario now and see people engaging with art is a truly magical moment. Frank Gehry was born in Toronto, and he had his artistic epiphany in the Walker Court, which is the 1926 Beaux-Arts Square of the Art Gallery of Ontario, and there's an image up on the wall of the model of that space. And this is what it looked like two days ago with the magical staircase that goes the equivalent of 12 residential stories high shooting up through the middle of the Walker Court. He wanted to make the Walker Court into a temple because he believed that his experience and his associations with a changing life moment in front of a work of art should somehow be communicated to others. <clears throat> and I think that that notion of working with an architect, and might I also say with um, deep affection, with Ken Thompson as well, uh, two leaders who grew up with the Art Gallery of Ontario as their museum of their childhood, that working with that notion of childhood and what constitutes that magical moment when you really believe something is possible, which happens in moments of childhood and wonder, to, you, to work with someone like Frank Gehry who thinks in that way about our space and who thinks in that way about the Walker Court meant that he would do something special, that somehow that he would take that memory from his past and bring it into the experience of the space for the future. The great challenge we have, and we are building a great institution, uh, a big institution, and all those things that institution mean, concrete, size, money, support, it's big. The challenge is somehow to balance that notion of the institution, which is power and momentum with the notion of home. How do you create the institution with all of those positive attributes and at the same time create a sense of home, which is this notion of welcome, belonging, we want you here. This is the model of the new entrance to the Art Gallery of Ontario that's made out of limestone and wood. And when you walk in, we hope what you feel is we want you here. We want you to come forward. We want you in this space. I think the language of the new building is wood and light, two optimistic materials, two materials that surround you wherever you are. The uh, image shows an information desk at the front, so the first encounter you have is with people uh, engaging you in the experience of the Art Gallery of Ontario. The notion of how you reach out to populations and say you belong here is a function not only of the space, but also the notion of visitor welcome. And so we recognize that we have populations very diverse and we need to find ways to talk to their experience. We also need to make an accessible institution. So when we reopen in just a few days, uh, we will have an institution that is open to high school students for free. Every day high school is in session. We are maintaining our Wednesday night uh, openings. We're part of the uh, Institute of, Contemporary, of, of Canadian Citizenship which is a program we began to give out free memberships to new Canadians, which we've now done for two years, to say that if new Canadians have chosen Canada as their home, then so too do we want them to think of the Art Gallery of Ontario as their home. 
We are part of a library pass program. In fact, the leader in this program where we actually give out passes to the Art Gallery of Ontario as if you're checking a book out of a library. The point being that if you want your institution truly to reach out and be a place where people feel they belong, you want to create these points of access. And once you create an institution that truly is about accessibility, then you create an institution where people feel at home. Accessibility, visitor welcome, the comforts of an institution are um, expressed in many levels of its endeavor. The size of the point, the point size of the labels, the amount of seating in different galleries, the price point in the restaurant to make sure it's affordable. All of those uh, aspects of reaching out and saying we want you here and we want you to come back are uh, aspects of the new Art Guide of Ontario that we thought about very carefully. This is a very special and magical space in the Art Gallery of Ontario. You're seeing here a model of the sculpture promenade, which was designed by Frank Gehry to create that connection to the city. Because one of the goals we gave to Frank was create a building which celebrates its position in downtown Toronto, that celebrates its relationship to the city in which we live. And he created this great sculptural promenade. And then Tony Galliano, one of our great leaders on the AGO volunteer board, came up with the idea that maybe he could call on some leaders in the Italian community and engage them in a connection to the Art Gallery of Ontario that didn't exist before, and we could call this the Gallery Italia, which we did. And Tony showed great leadership in approaching many leaders in the Italian community, and it's now with pleasure called Gallery Italia, and it is 465 feet long and 50 feet high, and it is truly an extraordinary space for the viewing of art. This is what it looks like. Uh, it looked like about three weeks ago. Uh, soaring spaces. The AGO is the largest public project in North America to use wood, and there's nowhere more evident of this expression than in Gallery Italia, where you see wood on the floor, wood on the wall, and in fact the beams are uh, uh, Douglas fir timbers that are used for structural purpose. I might say this at my peril because you'll uh, perhaps think less of me. Um, there is a point in the project when uh, we were trying to make the budget work, and we did. Okay, on budget. <laughs> Where's Jim Fleck? Jim Fleck is our great uh, chair of our building committee. We're on budget. Um, but there was a moment when I was sort of talking with Frank about how we might just pull it in a bit, and not because I really believed it. Okay, I really want to reassure you, I didn't really believe it, but. I said to him, how about taking the wood off the wall and we'll put drywall up and we'll paint it brown. <laughs> and, um, but you know, I'll tell you, there was purpose in that because I actually knew if, if he said yes, there'd be a reason for it. If he said no, there'd be a reason for it. And if I could understand his response, it would allow me to understand the building better. And he said, you know, I can't, I, we can't do that. And I said, why not? And he said, because the... Uh, power of this building is going to be the institutional scale and the domestic feel. And that tension that's going to be throughout the building, and you will experience it, uh, is at the core of the experience of the building, being in that space. Uh, so if you, if you insist that I take the wood off the wall, you'll take away that sense of the enclosure, of domestic feel. Uh, so I didn't. We found the $400,000 somewhere else. Because did I tell you yet that we're on budget? Um, uh, and we've, we've created a truly, truly magical space. And um, from our own point of view, we thought what an extraordinary gift back to the Italian community to 
ask an Italian artist to do a work in that space. And so I went to Tony and asked if he thought that would be a good conversation. He thought there was promise in that idea. And we approached Giuseppe Pannone, who's a great artist from Torino in Italy. And he's created, and you see him working actually in the gallery last week on one of 28 elements that are going to go into that space. And what he's done is he's actually carved trees out of white pine. And someone was explaining to me the other day, the great and interesting thing is that white pine was the, in, the engine of the Ontario economy at the turn of the 20th century in the same way that Douglas fir is uh, important to the British Columbia economy. So white pine in Ontario, Douglas fir in British Columbia, and there's this conversation going on which is really very powerful. Anyway, this is going to be up for the opening, and it will be up for about 18 months. <clears throat> Just before we announced our project to the public, uh, Ken Thompson uh, bought this painting, The Massacre of the Innocents by Peter Paul Rubens, a truly great world masterpiece. In fact, I have to tell you that whenever I see Philippe de Montebello at the, Metropol at the Metropolitan Museum, he asks how his painting is uh, because he was the underbidder. Um, I, t I tell him he could come and visit any time, but if he's not a member, he'll have to pay. Um, <laughs> What was great about this moment, and I remember, that, I remember so vividly that Ken phoned me up 10 minutes after he bought it to say that he'd done this incredibly foolish thing without sort of lightness in his voice, is that it expressed for him and for the institution at one and the same time the ambition that he had for the institution. He wanted to declare boldly that for him as a collector, this was a summing up of his interest in anatomy, of great achievement for artists, a pinnacle of expression, which he was looking for in his Gothic ivories, he was looking for in boxwood carvings, and he saw that he could do, that, do such with this painting. But it was also both for him and for us a clear expression of the ambition of the institution, that we might actually in some way or other take on the world. So I'm glad to tell you, pleased to tell you, that the painting will be gloriously on view when we open, and to give you Little hint, it's already in the building. This is one of the small galleries around the Rubens that shows Ken's collection of portrait um, busts of famous folks. This is a whole group of works by Sheverton, who was an important uh, British miniaturist. Um, the uh, curator of medieval art at the Met called Ken Thompson's collection of European small-scale sculpture the finest collection uh, put together in the world in the last 30 years. And I'm pleased to say that that is one of three parts of the Thompson collection that becomes the catalyst for our expansion. The other two, of course, are his Canadian collection of more than 800 uh, Canadian paintings from the 19th and 20th century and an extraordinary collection of ship models. And um, I am a member of an international group of museum directors that have very serious meetings once a year and uh, every time I'm with, whether it's Philippe or Neil McGregor from the British Museum or Mark Jones from Victoria and Albert, I always want to talk about what one might do with a collection of ship models and how do you actually bring a collection of ship models into a public institution, an art gallery. And uh, some museum directors think we, we should do it on the basis of miniaturization. Some think we should do it on the issue of craft and that we should show all of the uh, drawings that shipbuilders use to create these models, and we've chosen a different route, and we've created what I think you'll find is a truly magical room uh, designed by Frank Gehry that's all about the notion of the journey and exploration. 
uh, not exploration in the sense of maps, but imaginative exploration, because we think that if we can use these ship models as metaphors for anything, they are metaphors for the experience we have with art, that maybe in fact by uh, engaging with these images as, as, as um, symbols of our aesthetic journey, we can actually replicate the notion that that's what art does for us. It takes us on a journey and perhaps even takes us somewhere completely new. Uh, this is a Lauren Harris painting. That's uh, one of uh, 80 Lauren Harris paintings uh, given by the Thompson family. I don't mean anything by this except it's a figure of death. Um, it is a mid-16th uh, century German piece. And this is one of the most wonderful ships. It actually comes apart and you can see the insides of it. If we do actually want to be an institution that reaches out and says to people, you belong here, we have to find a way to look at art from different points of view. We cannot be Eurocentric. We cannot be art historical in the sense that our installations or our presentations of works of art are presented only in terms of art movements. We have to find a way to present the art in a way that reaches out to personal experience. Robert Rauschenberg, the great uh, American artist, said that he wanted to exist in the gap between art and life. And the way we translate that is we don't necessarily want to operate in that gap, but we want to find a way as a public institution to bridge those, the way we think about art, the way we lead our lives. What, what, what might we do to bring contemporary thinking, cultural experience, our own notions of home into the public institution? So this is just a snapshot of one small corner of one small room in which we have these two important 19th century Canadian paintings done by English artists who had immigrated to Canada and in front of it we place these really lovely uh, small Inuit boats and so you have the image of the marine painting in the back and you have the Inuit point of view in the front and perhaps if the Inuit work doesn't speak to your personal experience it at least raises the point of view that in this imagery there might be more than one way to think about the representation of the journey or the voyage. These aren't actually in Ken Thompson's ship model galleries but we're doing it in another part of the gallery. <clears throat> the, um, the way in which people create meaning in public institutions is also changing. So the notion of the passive visitor uh, is, I think, less relevant and powerful than it's, than it's been. I know this from my 17-year-old son, who um, spends a lot of time on the Internet, no surprise. But what he does on the Internet is creates meaning by creating content. So he's not a passive receiver. He's doing what Don Tavscott, the great thinker about new technologies, calls he becomes the prosumer, the producer and the consumer. And so rather than just passively receiving things, he's actually creating meaning by giving them back. And I think that that notion of the prosumer, somebody who's actually creating meaning and finding ways to share it in a space, is actually very important. And so we're going to have drawing stations at the Art Gallery of Ontario. We're going to have places where you can leave your comments. We're going to have places on our website where you can engage with others about the experiences you've had. Because if a work of art is truly going to come alive today, and I say this knowing full well um, that it, how hard it is to get my 17-year-old son off the internet, um, I have to do it in, we have to do it in ways that truly engage the way people are learning. 
Just before we closed, we did a project called In Your Face, and it was the idea that we asked our membership to send to us their self-portraits. And we thought we'd get a couple thousand, we'd put them up, because our commitment was whatever we got, we would put up. Uh, we got 22,000, and we put them all up. We just kept expanding the space. Um, the project then became the founding exhibition for the new National Portrait Gallery. In its now uh, nomadic existence, it actually went up in, uh, in Ottawa. Uh, and it was, I think, a very powerful message to us, and we learned from it. We learned that people actually want to be in a museum space and find a way for their own expression and their own articulation of meaning to be expressed. And so in the new AGO, we're doing another project called In Your Home, where we're picking up on this notion that people come to Canada, they come to Toronto, they come out into public space with an idea of what their home might be, and we're going, to tr we're going to find ways to actually create this project, ask people to share their images of home, and bring them into the museum space. My own uh, challenge to the curators, and I might say one of the great uh, pleasures I've had in being part of this project from the art story point of view, is that we created a context in which curators and educators were working together from the very beginning. But one of my challenges to the curators and educators was, when we think about each room, and we are installing 110 galleries with 4,000 works of art, of which I might say very quickly, 40% of the art on view is new. Did not exist at the Art, of, art Gallery of Ontario before. Um, when you stand in one of those 110 galleries, we should have different ways of understanding them. And one of them should be, without reading anything or hearing anything, you as a visitor should be able to put together some meaning. And then there should be two or three other ways in which you get to l different levels of understanding. So this is the salon in our 19th century Canadian galleries. Uh, it looks a bit like the salon that we had before, um, but it isn't. Uh, the color's different which is symbolic, and there's some writing about why it means something different. But the other thing that we've done, and I'm just going to give you this art history lesson, it's going to take me 60 seconds. On the left-hand side, it starts with the way in which salons were organized in the 1860s. And as you go around the room, it slowly starts to change. So by the time you're on the right-hand side of the wall, it's how salons were hung in 1918. And what we articulate here is that the salon was the main vehicle of power in the art world. Not so much anymore. Uh, now it's Damien Hurst at Sotheby's. But at that time, it was the Salon. And by the time you come around the wall to the 1918 side, uh, we have hung that wall with 50% of the art on that wall is by women. Because while that wasn't factually true, alas, it could have been true. And when you look at that wall, you can see from points of view of quality and connections to other artists, it's absolutely there. And so we have a subtext in this room that you, can, uh, that you can access by reading a text or listening to an audio guide. The uh, back of the building is a blue cube covered in titanium. The blue is titanium. Frank's uh, poetic idea is that the blue will combine with the sky at certain times of the day and that this great volume will disappear. Early on in the design process, some of you may have seen it either coming out of the Rogers Center or walking along Queen Street. Early on uh, in the design process, a couple of board members 
none of the ones in this room or on the stage, might I say, said to me, you know, the problem with our building is it's not quite Frank Gehry enough. And the back of the building, you know, could you get him to sort of do something a little more Frank Gehry-like? And um, so I had the conversation with Frank where I actually said to him, you know, some, some folks think it should open up a bit. And he actually designed a different back. And he put them in front of me and he said, you know, you can do either one. Same price, but this one, pointing to the blue box, is better. And again, in the same way that I did around the cost of the Galvary Italia, I said, why? He said, because it relates to the Ontario College of Art and Design, the great building by Will Alsop right next door to us, and it creates an urban moment. If I create this with these sort of wings, he had done something that sort of splayed a bit. He said it looked like it came in from outer space because it doesn't relate to the design of the city. And once I've seen what Will Alsop's done, I know I can do this. And he said, it's better architecture inside. It's better for the art. And I was walking through the gallery the other day, looking at some of the paintings that we put on the walls and realizing how he has truly created a great uh, gallery for art, for the viewing of art. Okay, so it's a great building to be together with others, but at the end of the day, it's the quality of looking at a work of art. So this is a small room on the Contemporary Tower, which is inside that blue box. It's a room for at least for the next year. It's devoted to the work of Betty Goodwin, the important Montreal artist. You can see a skylight, just the edge of it, that brings this most beautiful light into the space. And I can only tell you from having experienced it now for the last number of months, there's nothing better than seeing works of art in natural light. And this uh, really, I think, is a great, great compliment to an important artist. Uh, Earlier this week, uh, Frank Stella came into town. He's a New York artist who's had some connection to Toronto through David Mervish and the Prince of Wales, Princess of Wales Theatre. Um, we had come up with the idea of approaching Frank to do something for us and decided that the light well in the restaurant was the place to do it. So this is just an image of him, of the work just about to go up. That's just to show that he was actually here because he's wearing an AGO hat. <laughs> Um, uh, he did, he did, I did have that moment where Frank Gary was walking down the ramp because he was here earlier this week as well and Frank Stella was with his work and I said where's Frank Stella and he was lying on a sofa almost asleep reading a newspaper as these big burly guys were actually putting the sculpture up so that's how you get things done I guess um, but they had a moment and uh, I had said to Frank earlier that uh, Frank Stella that Frank Gehry was really thrilled and then Frank Ge Stella said to me yeah, he's only thrilled because he hasn't seen it so uh, there I was at the moment where Frank Gehry was actually seeing it for the first time and it was a magical and really wonderful moment and it's just a, a really terrific achievement this is the back of the building, the blue building, uh, as you can see it from the roof of the Ontario College of Art and Design. I don't quite know how we got up there. I guess Sarah let us go up there to take the photograph. Um, you know, I, I think about Toronto as a very different place uh, than I did five years ago. And uh, I think about what's happened at the Opera and what's happened at the Gardner Museum, what's happened at the Conservatory, what's happened at Roy Thompson Hall, I think about the programming at the Textile Museum. I mean, I just think about Toronto so differently than I thought about it five or seven years ago. And I think that we've been fortunate 
uh, at the Art Gallery of Ontario to have an incredible project that people, many of you, have believed in. Um, what we wanted to think about, and I think my colleagues in the cultural world in Toronto have thought about this with power and conviction as well, uh, is the notion of change. Because when you take a building away, as we did for a year and a half, when you ask people for support, when you ask politicians to give the public money, uh, you're asking them to invest in a dream because you can't actually prove it's going to happen. Uh, and so you articulate all these different ways in which change will take place, and then you keep your fingers crossed. You work hard. You have the benefit of an extraordinary board. You hire well. You focus people on the end result. And then you really truly keep your fingers crossed. And I just want to say that I think the um, great change to the Art Gallery of Ontario uh, is that it has the best opportunity it's ever had to truly declare that art matters, that art can actually change the way in which we think about the world, the way we think about our own creativity, the way in which we can think about the possibility for the future. And I say again, not only the notion of community coming together and culture speaking to one another, I say it also in the notion of what constitutes possibility as we look forward. I think the Art Gallery of Ontario can be one of the great civic institutions in this country to um, give us all confidence about thinking in new ways about the future that is so challenging for us. So I want to end again by saying thank you for believing in us. Uh, thank you all for being card-carrying members of the Art Gallery of Ontario. And uh, we are opening up uh, in about 10 days. I realize I'm at that point in the project that if I say it enough, it'll have to be true. So um, I'm looking forward to welcoming all of you. And I would like to take questions if there are any, but I just wanted to end again by saying thank you very much for believing in what we do. Are there questions? Or does anyone want to spontaneously stand up and make a big donation? <laughs> yes. inspired you that, that you think is a, a superb model of this kind of approach? The question was whether, as we were thinking about the project, whether there was a model that we looked to for, for, for leadership. Um, well, we didn't do what many boards and public institutions do, which is, you know, get on a plane and go around together to look at different museums. But we did have a number of conversations, both at the board level under Charlie Bailey's leadership and at the staff level, around the kinds of values we wanted uh, in an art museum. Uh, in my own mind, uh, when we approached Frank Gehry, it was very much, uh, again, from my point of view, based on my conviction that he was the right person to do something special for us. 
partly because of this childhood connection to Toronto and partly because I had had, at that point, three truly uh, memorable and deep experiences at Bilbao where I was far more interested in how I felt when I walked through the space than I was looking at it from the outside. And by the way, I thought it looked beautiful from the outside, but it was the sense of how the spaces for art were joined together and how your body felt as you moved through the space. So from an architectural point of view, it was really that. I was thinking about Bilbao. From a museum uh, uh, conceptual approach to what art means, um, we were emboldened by the Tate Modern. We liked what they had done. We had conversations at the curatorial and, and uh, educational level around what they had achieved and, by the way, what we could do better. Um, and what they had achieved was what I would call this, these different points of view about the narrative of art. And, uh, you know, I, I deeply respect the Museum of Modern Art in New York. Uh, which is one of the world's great institutions. It can afford to create the grand narrative which it had uh, and has done uh, so brilliantly, but we weren't interested in the grand narrative. We were interested in trying to find a way in which different rooms and experiences could relate to individual experience, and that's why uh, Tate Modern was of interest to us. Thank you. Um, I have to say uh, I'm quite touched by the presentation you made. Uh, I like the theme you're talking about. This is a welcoming place. This is a place that would be reflecting the true diversities of this great country, Canada, and being a place right in this city of Toronto. And you mentioned about the number of uh, languages people speak at home. Uh, you're talking about uh, where people come from, you know, over hundreds of uh, groups. And I think that's all great. And I like to hear what connection. And to what extent, or is there any plans or consideration being given of also doing marketing, so to speak, in addition to the high school students, um, to the various diverse community groups in the Greek city of Toronto? Well, I think that we are being more uh, ambitious than we've been in terms of how we reached out to communities operating in different languages. We have a marketing plan that does reach out into Asian communities in a new way, into some of the other new immigrant communities in a way that I think um, uh, connects what we do to who they are. Uh, we are working with specific high school students, not just in terms of access, but also in trying to find ways to solicit from them the language that we can use to actually articulate what it is that we're doing and therefore create the kinds of connections when you're in the Art Gallery of Ontario to the experience of our visitors in multi-layered ways. We're also trying as much as we can, and we do have the constraint of uh, operating funds that are relatively finite, uh, to do what we can in many languages within the institution. We're certainly doing all of our labeling as we have in French and English. We're doing a number in First Nations languages, Inuit languages, and then some of our welcome brochures will be in many languages. Hi. Um, very much enjoyed the presentation and your preview. Uh, it's really excellent. Uh, I have two questions. The first is, when you open, is the building itself going to be finished, or is there still more work to do on the building, never mind the galleries? Um, and secondly, you mentioned that about 40% of the art is new. Is that newly purchased art, or is it 
newly displayed art that you've had, but because of the magnitude of the project, you're able to have more space. Uh, the second question is 40% is new. Uh, so we've not just benefited from the extraordinary gift of the Thompson family. We've acquired the Frum Collection of African Art, although, as I like to tell Murray, we haven't acquired all of it yet, but um, <laughs> everything in due course. Um, uh, great collections of photography and some really extraordinary, and Jay Smith is here, extraordinary purchases of contemporary art through the leadership of uh, uh, individuals on our board. So half of the work on the fifth floor of the Contemporary Tower is new. Uh, so are there some things from the European collection and some of the Canadian works that have come up, quote, from the basement? Yes. Uh, but the vast majority of that 40% are new acquisitions, have not been at the AGO before. Uh, <clears throat> if I was amongst friends, and I, I'll assume that I am, what I can say to you is I'm not going to tell you what's not finished. Uh, the reality is that, you know, we move into a home and we, we fix it up for a year. Will you walk into the AGO and feel that it is finished? Absolutely. Is there some um, aluminum flashing under one of the soffits that's not going to be done? Are there a couple of panes of glass way up there that you're not going to see that aren't in yet? Yep. Uh, do we still have work people on site? Yes. Does that mean that we're going to have to keep a couple of portables? On Beverly Street, yes. Do I wish it wasn't true? Yes. Um, but when you walk in the front door, and when you walk in, it is going to be a complete building in every sense. You're dealing now with viewing audiences that don't necessarily have the education um, in referring one art period and one art form to others, which has been a traditional way of enjoying art in galleries. How are you addressing um, the lack of perhaps formal education in the arts uh, from a curatorial po point of view, but also from an educa educational curriculum point of view? So um, one of the great things we did as an institution at the administrative level about two years ago was that we came up with a document called Imagining Success. And uh, we wrote down about 20 things that we committed to one another we would achieve, because if we could, we would have imagined and realized success. And I have to tell you, it was one of the best things we could have done, because it gave us a language with which to approach the setting of priorities once we were fully into the project. In fact, I've shared it with a few of my colleagues in the United States who were doing similar projects, because I think it was so important to us. And one of the things we put in there very clearly was that anybody walking between two galleries would, would uh, confront at least two new interpretive ways of engaging with the art. So it would be above and beyond the text on the wall, which is a summary panel. There would be two other ways, whether it was something you picked up, something you listened to, or something you watched. You would find different points of entry, and we've achieved that. The other thing that we've done, which is relatively new, is that at every feature area of our collection, which is our European, uh, our Canadian, our contemporary, our African, where there is, in a sense, a destination point, we've created something which, and I wish there was a different word, and we looked in the thesaurus and there isn't a hub. And when you walk into that, up to that area, there's a hub that orients you to that new, that new area. And there uh, is in that hub a range of activities. There are things to read, things to do, comment cards to leave behind, places to sit. Um, and there will be stationed there one or two gallery guides. And the function there is that rather than having the 
what we used to call the docent-led tour, where you gather and you'd walk through and all that. Here you come to an area and somebody's there to help introduce you to some ideas, to um, engage you with some of the ideas that are on the wall, and to orient you to the space. And so that's another way in which we're hoping, as long as we can do it well, and we're going to try our very best, that people will be engaged in a way that they feel comfortable with somebody there to talk to them about the art. Matthew, it was a very touching speech, actually. Um, can you talk a little bit about how this is going to position Toronto within the international uh, museum and gallery scene? I mean, you talked a bit about the references that you used in thinking through the AGO, the new AGO, but surely this also places us within the uh, agenda of the Bilbao's and the MoMA's, etc. Very early on in the project, and we're working with Frank Gehry, and we're working with, you know, uh, good thinkers about urban design, uh, we coined a phrase internally, which was that we were not building a building. We were building an experience. Because we didn't want to fall into the trap that the building was the goal. The, the building wasn't the goal. The fact that it, I believe, is a great building, I think, will be a testament to a process, but it wasn't our goal. Our goal was to create a place where certain kinds of experiences could take place. So to the degree that we're a different institution, it's going to be on how we work collaboratively with other institutions to develop exhibitions, how we do curatorial exchange programs, uh, how we create uh, publications that truly bring our expertise to bear with the, that of others. Uh, and I think we're poised to do that. But it, of course, points to the great challenge which isn't to say I'm going to start a new fundraising campaign here, but the big challenge is how do you move from a capital project to an operating environment? How do you really create the infrastructure that allows you to take advantage of this great opportunity? Um, I think it's true to say in the museum community, the eyes of the world will be on us. You know, I didn't think that at the beginning, or I didn't want to think that. Maybe it made me too nervous or whatever. Now I think it's true. I mean, I know it from the response I'm getting that in the museum community, people are going to be coming, not just to figure out what we did with the ship models, but to actually see how we worked with Frank Gehry in his hometown and created this home for this incredible collection of the Thompson gift, which is known around the world. And also, there are museums coming to talk to us about our interpretive strategy. So we know there's a lot of interest, and our challenge now is to create the infrastructure internally to really allow us to build those relationships. And I've had pretty interesting conversations with a lot of major museum directors, and my challenge now is to create the engine within the institution that allow us to take the advantage of those opportunities. But I, at the core of your question, I think there's an essential truth, that this is a great time for the AGO, and it's a great moment for Toronto. Hello. Uh, thank you very much for your uh, really interesting presentation. Uh, just really a follow-up. Of your response, and and that is, uh, how do you see the uh, role of of major exhibits or exhibitions uh, in the say the next five years? I think we're entering into a, a period in which organizing major exhibitions is going to become more and more challenging. Uh, institutions aren't going to want to lend major works. Institutions that want to borrow them are going to have trouble affording the insurance costs uh, and the terrorism insurance. I mean, there are conversations around the tables of these international museum directors groups that I attend in which we're beseeching each other to get rid of terrorism insurance, which is a new thing in the landscape of or exhibition organizing. 
either that or we should get into the terrorism insurance business, one or the other. Um, so I think that the cost of organizing major exhibitions is going up and up, and I think it's going to squeeze the ability of any, any other than the largest institutions to do the big blockbuster exhibitions. We're trying to figure out how to do it. I think that uh, I can go into a longer sense of how that may still continue. I think for-profit institutions are going to arise that actually supply exhibitions, and that's going to have its own uh, challenge. But here's the punchline. The punchline is I think the institutions like the AGO have to think about their permanent collection differently and find ways to present it to the public. We have now 72,000 works of art, of which, you know, a small percentage is on view. There are incredible stories that we have. Uh, we present work from our collection as the permanent collection, which, you know, where Sue Block Nevitt comes from is sure less exciting than special exhibitions. So the question is, can you take that permanent collection proposition put it maybe in a different clothing and create real connection? The answer is yes, particularly if you can create interesting points of view about that material and engage that in a way that your audiences really feel connected. And so I think what you're going to see is a move towards celebrating the permanent collection more and differently, equally important, and my hunch is less so on the blockbuster exhibition side, which I think is no bad thing. I think that you can actually connect with your community differently, and you can find meaning that's uh, latent in, in what you have. Was that? Sorry, Tom. I don't know. I know we all wanted to hear much more from Matthew, uh, but I have to have a chance to thank him officially on behalf of both the Canadian Club and the Empire Club. I'm Helen Burstyn. I'm the president of the Canadian Club of Toronto. And I do want to thank Matthew for joining us today and telling us all about trans transforming the AGO. When the AGO reopens its doors in two weeks, lovers of art and culture, people with a passion for architecture and city building, Torontonians and tourists, will flock to the heart of art in our city. They'll come to see how Frank Gehry has reimagined what began as a 19th century grand old home on the Grange into Toronto's iconic 21st century home for the visual arts. The new AGO will bring major economic as well as cultural benefits to Toronto and to Ontario. It promises increased tourism, job creation in the hospitality and consumer sectors, and an exciting hook for attracting investment. But the reopening of the AGO means much more than that. As our distinguished guest has told us today, great cultural institutions are markers of great cities. Art galleries have always been places where the mind of the individual, from toddler to senior, connects with the greater world. The Group of Seven's Lauren Harris, whose works are among the magnificent collection bequeathed to the AGO by Ken Thompson, Harris said that works of art test the spectator much more than the spectator tests them. When the Art Gallery of Ontario reopens in November, we look forward to being tested and delighted by Transformation AGO. Thank you, Matthew, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you, Helen. Uh, every year, the uh, Empire Club of Canada Foundation publishes a book of that year's speeches. We'd like you to accept this, Matthew, knowing that you will be in next year's book. Thank you. 
On Monday, we are co-hosting F.W. de Klerk, former president of South Africa and chairman of the Global Leadership Foundation, speaking on the topic, the third world, is it sinking or shrinking? How often do you get to share lunch with a Nobel Peace Prize winner? Uh, a few seats remain, so please see the desk outside if you're interested, or you can reserve at empireclub.org. And please do be, uh, consider becoming a member of the Empire Club. There are membership applications at your table and at the reception desk outside at $50 annually. It is one of the, uh, it gives you me membership benefits, discounts, and it's certainly one of the most affordable intellectual treats out there. Our luncheon today is being broadcast on Rogers TV. The luncheon meetings are also rebroadcast across Canada on CPAC, and you can view a webcast of today's luncheon on our website at empireclub.org. Thank you for being with us today, and please join us again for lunch. This meeting is adjourned. <laughs>